1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The city of Athens is the center of the Greek intelligentsia in Paul's day. The great wisdom of the world is centered in that city. The, um, the judges, the interpreters of philosophy, the Epicureans and Stoics, all had Athens as the center of their thought and life. There is a hill in Athens. Some of you visited it if you've made that trip over there. I think some of you have, as a matter of fact, called Mars Hill. To the Romans, it was Mars Hill. To the Athenians, to the, to the uh, Greeks, the Grecians, it was called the Areopagus, the Areopagus after the Greek god of war, Ares. And on this hill, a council met of not more than 30 men. And these 30 men determined the thought of the entire nation of Greece. The Apostle Paul had, a, had the privilege of preaching to the uh, intelligentsia of his time. The sermon is the famous sermon preached on Mars Hill. It's found in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. And so before we uh, study the scripture that's in 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to turn to that, to that record, to that passage that's in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. Now everybody needs to turn to that. I picked up a, or somebody had tacked on my door uh, Monday morning when I came to, to work some beautiful artistry of, uh, that was done here on Sunday night while uh, on, the, on the worksheet had this pulpit here. And this guy up here preaching, didn't look like me, he was much skinnier than I am. Had, had this dog over here, you know, and this dog was interpreting, I think, what I was saying. Now you guys, can do better than that. There's a, I know you can beat that. That's not uh, too original, you know. I hear this dog, you know. Seventeenth chapter of the book of Acts. I want to uh, look first at the sixteenth verse to establish the setting. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. The word provoked there means that he was literally torn apart as he saw the pagan uh, nature of, his, of this city. So he was reasoning in the synagogues, in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. He not only um, preached in the synagogue, but he was out in the streets every day and he had this street uh, ministry going on. He was preaching in the streets to these people who gathered to hear him. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say 
You, if, it's interesting to look at that phrase in the Greek. It, it, it's, the, it's the word that, is, uh, that, that means a bird pecking in the grain. And, and they accused old Paul of just kind of pecking in the, in, the, in the philosophy of his day, just dabbling in it. He didn't really know what he was talking about, they were saying. What would an idle babbler wish to say? Others were saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities and, and the end of the quotation marks there. Now notice, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now the Gentiles, the Greeks had a thing about the resurrection. They believed of course that the soul kept on living after death. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but it was abhorrent to them to believe that the body would be raised. For they saw the body as a tomb that, that, that shackled the soul. And it was abhorrent to them to think that the body would be raised at some time after the soul had been freed from the shackles of the body and, and the soul would be shackled again to this tomb, this body. It was ab an abhorrent thing to them. And, and so they were questioning the Apostle Paul. Now, I want you to pick up with me and, and skip down to, um, uh, let me just read a little further. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you have been, which you are proclaiming. Now I want you to skip down to verse 30. We don't really have time to, to uh, go through the sermon that he preached, but just jump down to verse 30. Now he's bringing his message to a point and he says this, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Now these people who were listening, this council on, the, on, on Mars Hill, they too believed that every man needs to repent. They didn't have any problem with that part of the sermon. Go on with me. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, they believe that to be true that one day God would judge all men. That's why it was necessary for men to repent. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, that's when the sermon stopped. Some began to sneer. Some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. The sermon over. Now, it's time for the invitation. When he began to speak of the resurrection. And some, even of the council of the Areopagus, believed what Paul was preaching. Now, there's three, those kinds of people, that three kind, those three kinds of people are present here tonight. There's some who want to hear more about this before they believe. There are some who believe in the resurrection of, of the dead. And there are some who sneer at the very idea of that. I mean, that response to the 
concept to the doctrine of the resurrection, uh, the same response is, is directed toward the idea of the resurrection as that. As a matter of fact, James Stewart says that the uh, laughter of the council is echoed for 20 centuries. Now the point is that what Paul was preaching was centered in the great truth that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now the question that is raised in 1 Corinthians 15, believe it or not, is not did Jesus, was Jesus raised from the dead? That's not the question. The question that gripped the people in Corinth that is dealt with in 1 Corinthians 15 is, am I going to be raised from the dead? And what kind of body will I have if I am raised from the dead? Now you can't be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I need to say that again. You cannot be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now there is a, there is a, a, a strain, there is a, um, a, a, a teaching, a liberal element in, in, in modern theology today that denies miracles and the resurrection of Jesus. A Christian quote theology, end quote, that denies the resurrection of Jesus. You can't be a Christian and not believe he was raised from the dead. You can be a Christian and not believe that you will be raised from the dead. Because that was what was going on in the church at Corinth. Look you down, let your eyes fall down, uh, not let your eyes fall down, but let your gaze fall to verse 12. That was the controversy. Is it possible that we're going to be raised? Now what Paul is saying is that his resurrection guarantees your resurrection. And if you're not going to be raised, then he's not raised. They go together. Now, follow with me verse by verse. First of all, if you're following in your outline, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand. Now the gospel has a process. There has to be that person or that word that proclaims it. There has to be a recipient and then there has to be that standing in it, that is, that acceptance of it, that belief in it. So that the Apostle Paul said, I preach the gospel. It's interesting that the gospel he preached was the gospel that contained the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the gospel, that Jesus was crucified, buried, and was raised. And there were those who received the gospel and believed in it and stood upon it. That is, they committed their faith to it. The word preach there is an interesting word to study. When you hear about, when you hear about somebody preaching, you automatically think of stained glass windows and pulpits. It's the word gospelizing, literally. He said, when I came to Corinth, I gospelized. 
You don't have to have a pulpit to do that. As a matter of fact, every Christian here tonight is called to gospelize. You can gospelize in that classroom tomorrow, in that athletic field. You can gospelize in that business tomorrow. That's what we're called to do. When I came to Corinth, he said, I gospelized. Now look at the, at the purpose of the gospel. Watch this. By which also you are being saved. Now you need to underline that. It's in the present tense, by which also you are being saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now you need to watch this carefully. There are those who take this verse and say that a person can be saved and he can lose his salvation if he does not hold fast to the word. Now what he says is, you are being saved by holding fast to the word that I preached unless you believed in vain. Verse one has to do with being saved from sin. Verse two has to do with being saved from self. Now watch this. You are saved when you receive the word of God, the gospel, and you stand in it, you accept it, and you believe it. Aris tense, you are saved. You are being saved, that is, sanctification occurs in your life. You are being saved from self. You become what you are if you hold fast to the word that he preached. And if you do not do this, you have believed in vain. Now, watch that. now this is what that means. That the purpose of your salvation and mine was not that we are saved from hell and death, etc. That's not why we were saved, really. Now, that does happen. We are saved from sin, saved from hell, saved from eternal separation from God. But that wasn't the reason why God saved you, just so you wouldn't go to hell. You were saved in order that you might be saved from self, that is, that you might be just like Jesus Christ, that you might bear his image in the world, that you might be conformed to him, that you might become what he is. Now, I want you to turn back to first, the, the uh, first chapter of 1 Corinthians, for there is one other place in this book where he talks about this word that I preach to you. Now, it's found in verse 18. It says, For the word, for the word of the cross is to those, those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, there it is again, thus who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now what enables you to be saved from self? It is the word of the cross. Now the word of the cross is the word of death and denial. 
the word of, de of death and denial. When I hear this, I think of what Jesus said when he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You are being saved, he said, from this stubborn self-will as you apply the death of the cross to your life daily. And if you do not do that, if you do not become what you are when you're saved, if you do not become experientially what you are judicially and positionally, you've really believed in vain. Now you escape hell, but the purpose of your life has never been reached. Now, it's amazing to me to, cons to consider when I, when I discover that what the, the emphasis of the New Testament is not on the initial act of conversion. The great volume of New Testament material does not deal with the initial act of conversion. It deals with what happens after conversion. It wants us to understand that just being saved in the initial act of conversion is just the beginning of the process of the, of the purpose of God for your life. And some of you are going to live your life and the extent of your life and you're going to die and you never really become what you are. And you will have believed in vain in the sense that you're saved, but you never really were brought to the purpose of that salvation. And that is that you are Christ to your neighbor. That's what I've been trying to point out on Sunday morning when I've been talking about the growth of the Christian. Most of us want to get saved or get people saved, and that's the end of it. That's not the end of it. You are being saved by this resurrection power that smashes the strong self-will. And as you apply the principle of death of the cross daily to your life, you are, you, you, you are saved from self. Now notice the content of this gospel. The content of the gospel is this. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, I want to read you something. I wasn't going to read this, and I got in there and got to thinking. I got to reading it, and I thought, no, you just, we just got to hear this again. This is Easter week, Palm Sunday. Now, when he said that this is what I preach Christ died for your sins according to Scripture. This is what he's talking about. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land, putting him to grief. You know what that comes from? It comes from the gospel of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, it was written five, it was written 700 years before Jesus died. Now what he preached was this death of Jesus. The fact of his death was that he was crucified. The proof of his death was that he was buried. The fact of his resurrection was that he was raised from the dead. The proof of that fact was that he appeared to many witnesses. I was reading somewhere the other day, one man said that the resurrection is the best attested fact in history. And some of the greatest books that have ever been written on the resurrection were written by lawyers who set out to disprove the fact of the resurrection. I want to read you a statement by Sir Adam Clark. As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive and over and over again in the high court I secured the verdict of evidence not nearly so compelling as this evidence. As a lawyer, I accept the gospel evidence unreservedly as the testimony of men to facts that they were able to substantiate. The greatest, the greatest, most attested fact in history was that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. Now, he wants to describe, he wants to tell us of the, the, the people to whom he appeared. Generally, he said, to 500 witnesses. Now, you find a woman that's going to the garden all upset and uptight, she might get all, you know, fouled up in her testimony. But, you know, when he appeared to 500, now, now follow this. He says, he appeared to Cephas, that's Simon Peter, then to the 12, that's an anachronism. That means the disciples. There were just 11, of course, this time. And he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He said some have died since they saw him, but most of them are still alive. And then he appeared to James. James was his brother. He was the man who went to Jesus and asked him to come home. He thought he'd lost his mind. He appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, 
to one untimely born. Need to underline that. It's the word abortion. To one aborted. Now, that's a difficult uh, thing to understand what the apostle is talking about. He, he says, he appeared to me an abortion. Well, he's demeaning himself. You look at the context, he's saying, I no more have the right to be called an apostle than an abortion has the right to be called a man. And what he's driving at is this, that this Jesus who was raised from the dead did not just appear to the leaders of the, to the leader of the, of the disciples, nor did he just appear to the disciples. He appeared to this man who was less than the least, who couldn't even call, could no more call himself an apostle than an abortion could call himself a man. Fantastic thought here, look. And last of all, he appeared to one untimely born. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul is saying, I have no right to have, I've had, I have no right to, to have encountered him he, he, there, there was no business for him to come to me for I ravaged the church of God. This Lord who was raised from the dead, now hear me, is no respecter of persons or pasts. He'll come to you, whoever you are. That's what he's saying. He said, but... But, because, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. It does not refer to the strenuous effort that he put out. It refers to the success and the results of his life. But I leave it even more than all of them. I have had greater results than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Now, the success, success in the Christian life, becoming, now watch this, becoming what you are, to live your life so that it will not be in vain, is dependent upon His grace. Now you're a poor student of the Scripture if you think that the, the New Testament grace, in the New Testament that grace only refers to the initial act of salvation. There is forgiving grace, there is dying grace, there is living grace. I pointed this out last Sunday when it talks about, Paul said, I stand in this grace, in this treasury room of grace, and God says, help yourself. You need to be able to forgive that person. I'll give you grace to do that. 
You need to be able to love that unlovely person. I'll give you love to do that. I'll give you grace to do that. You need to live your life to be conformed to the image of, of God. I'll give you grace to do that. Grace is the unmerited, is the thing that we need but not deserved. It's God's benevolent, beneficent goodness extended toward us. And he said, I have become, I've not lived my life in vain because I have appropriated his grace. Now, the question is, how can I be sure that I have not believed in vain? What are the signs along the way to show me that I am being saved? that I am surrendering this arrogant self of mine to his dynamic control. Well, there are four signs. It's under application, and these are them. Number one, the first sign that I am being saved, that this grace is smashing this self-will in me, is a marked absence of pride. a marked absence of pride. Now, if you want to look in the book of Philippians, you will see Paul's testimony. And in this testimony, he tells what a great Pharisee he was. The Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he had, he was, he was it. And he had such pride that he went and asked if he could go to Damascus and, and arrest some more Christians. He was such a proud man. But you read chapter 15, verse 10. I am what I am by the grace of God. And all of a sudden, that pride disappeared. Is your besetting sin your pride? Is your besetting sin your pride? Are you afraid to admit your failure? Martin Luther says the greatest day of a man's life is when he is on his knees smiting his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Secondly, there is for that person who is becoming what he is a genuine appropriation of grace. A genuine appropriation of grace. Now, if there is anything that is good about your life as a Christian, you can write across it the word grace. For that which is good, that which is of ultimate significance, it is that which is attained by an appropriation of grace. Do I, do I address tonight who, wives who struggle with this matter of submission? And do I speak to husbands who are having a problem with the lordship of Christ? And do I speak to husbands, to parents whose children are learning the ability to rebel? Do you, need, do you understand 
that the key to success in the Christian life is an appropriation of His grace. Third, there will be, if a person is not believing in vain, there will be a redirection of his energy. A redirection of his energy. Somebody was telling me the other day, he said, boy, if old so-and-so ever became a Christian, he'd be a great one because he is just sold out the other direction. That's what the Apostle Paul was. I mean with zeal, he persecuted the church of God. And with the same zeal, he said, I labored more than the other. With the same zeal, he went after this matter of the Christian life. There was a redirection of his energy. Now, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you do nothing. It doesn't mean that. Sometimes I think that in this so-called deeper life movement that we, we, we give the idea that all of a sudden you become passive and God just kind of works on you, you know, and works through you. That is true, dynamically true. But there is a redirection of your energy and the whole force of your life directed toward doing the will of God. If you're really, if you've really not believed in vain, Fourth, there is an honest appreciation of others. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, who is they? Well, whoever else was preaching. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Isn't it amazing what can happen if a person doesn't care who gets the credit? Paul said, you believed. Was it I who led you or was it they? It, what difference does it make? You believed. There was this fellowship that understood that we're all in this together. Let me tell you something. You have believed in vain if you don't feel the need of one another. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we have the truth of the resurrection, that evidence, those infallible proofs. And I pray, Lord, that in the power of the resurrection, in this gospel wherein we stand, we might hold fast to that word of the cross so that we might become all we were meant to be, all that we are. I pray, Father, for this moment of truth.
and invitation. It will be all you desire it to be in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. The first invitation is for you to come and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Or to come tonight and join the church as some have done in the past few days, a few weeks. Or for those of us who would come to say, I need a new and fresh relationship, experience, fellowship with God, and you walk with Him. Would you do that? As God leads you to do it, would you obey Him as we stand to sing? Would you come?